Let's take our Bibles this morning and return to our study of the book of Romans. I have to admit that over the past several months in our study of this great epistle, we have been hearing much that has been difficult for us to really swallow. Randy brought that up just before we sang that last song. There's a whole lot of reasons for that, really, but I truly believe that at the top of the list is simply the fact that our study has taken us deeply into the biblical principle of judgment. I remember as we were studying through Revelation, that was continually on our minds, and some of you said to me, when are we going to get past the judgment? It's hard to do quickly in Revelation. Fortunately, here in Romans, it doesn't last much longer. None of us particularly care to speak about judgment or to really even think about it in any kind of deep way because it brings to mind not only pain, but it also brings to mind guilt. And guilt we don't like. Guilt is not a concept that we individually or as a human race care to discuss And even more so, we are not quick to even admit guilt when we are guilty. And yet judgment implies guilt. Guilt is an uncomfortable concept for any of us. It's in light of that that Romans 3 really shines brightly because it's filled with judgment and the reality of guilt and The light of that shines brightly on every sinful deformity in us. And those sinful deformities are clearly seen by what we hear from God's Word. That's how it's been really ever since the beginning of time. At the moment that Adam sinned against God in the garden, Adam worked to rid himself of that guilt That's just the natural response to when we sin. We want to get rid of that accompanying guilt that comes with it. And so, all throughout the history of mankind, man has been attempting to do that very same thing throughout history. Been attempting to rid themselves of the guilt that is upon them. In fact, one of the ways we try to rid ourselves of guilt is to simply convince ourselves that we are, in fact, good. That's what mankind has done. In our modern world, that attempt is continually substantiated by any number of secular and religious counselors who will help to actually suppress that guilt that naturally is in the heart of man through foolish accommodations. They say, it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. Go ahead. It's not you. You were born a different way. It's okay. Accommodate yourself. It's really not you. But deep in the heart of every human is what some have even described as a God-shaped vacuum. You may have heard that term. You may have seen people in ages past use that term for What is going on inside of men, that vacuum as they describe it, is actually a God-given reality and knowledge that something is deeply wrong. Something is wrong with us as humans. And that 
we must answer for that wrongness before a divine creator. The truth is that our so-called God-shaped vacuum is not God-shaped at all. It is actually guilt-shaped. No matter what we do as humans, we cannot escape the guilt. Cannot escape it. We as mankind continually feel guilty about things that we do. And so we inherently know that they are wrong because of the moral compass that God, by His grace, has placed there. And we cannot escape the reality. So in the end, we just make every effort to push it aside. We make every effort to excuse it. Push it aside by blaming others for our guilt. We even deny that it exists. We even deny that it's helpful for us to know that we are guilty. We say, ah, no, that's not even helpful. Don't tell me that. But guilt is only the symptom of the real problem. Guilt is the symptom. Guilt is the outworking of what's really happening. The real problem with mankind isn't that he feels guilty or that he knows that he is guilty. The real problem with man is that he is by nature liable before a holy God. And that liability shows itself in sinful activity. Man's guilt has only one source. It's not that man is liable because he sins. See, it's not that man has a liability problem before a holy God because he sins. The reality is that man is liable and that's why he sins. That's the sin to which man is a slave to. And that's what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing in the book of Romans. From verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through where we have been in verse 8 of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has made it patently clear that both the non-religious person and the religious person, both the moral and what you might be considered by a moral person, those who are non-moral people, they all stand guilty before God because of a liability issue and their sin proves their liability. But, in spite of that evidence, in spite of all the evidence leveled against mankind, man still is inclined to deny it. And so Paul, in the brilliance of his argumentation to convince men that they're totally liable before God, Paul gives a final argument before the court of human opinion. And he appeals to the ruling of the ultimate judge. He appeals to the witness that no one else could really appeal to that has the ultimate answer. The final judgment before the judge in the divine courtroom of God. And the words in the judgment are the words of God Himself. What does God's testimony say about men? 
He's the ultimate testimony against mankind. There is no acceptable defense left for man when God speaks. This is the final argument. And so I want to read for us this morning the section of Scripture that I want us to focus in on, and that is chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. And so let me read this for us so that we have it in our minds as we begin our time. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Obviously, he's speaking now to the Jewish people, to the moral people. Are we better than the non-moral people? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, Paul is a master at argumentation. He's a master at laying out the facts so that in the end it's irrefutable as to the detail and the reality of what is taking place. And his masterful argumentation concerning guilt of all men is right here before us. He has already laid the acts of judgment at the root of every Gentile, every non-Jew, every irreligious person, at least according to the Jews' mind. And the verdict? They are without excuse. Before God, they are all guilty. God has written His law upon their hearts. God has shown Himself to be the Creator God. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen by what He has made. You cannot deny it. You can feel it. You can touch it. You can smell it. And if you're not physically blind, you can see it. God's divine attributes are there for you to see. He has written the knowledge of Himself on the hearts of every man. Every man knows God in the capacity of general revelation. He has revealed Himself so that in the end, no one can justifiably say to God, I never knew about you. No one can stand unliable before God and say, listen, you never told me about you. They can never say, I didn't know who you were. The liability standard is on them. God gave it to them. So it's an unfounded argument before a just God. And in the same way then, and yet even more, Privileged were the Jews or the religious people. 
They too, like every Gentile, not only had the law of God written upon their hearts, because God wrote that upon every man's hearts, but God then gave them his oracles, his written word, his divine words to them through the prophets and through the law. They were given the written law of God. We saw that back in verse 2 of chapter 3. God had given them His special revelation. So not only did they know God through natural revelation, through what God had made by His creative power, His divine attributes, but they also knew what God expected of man. They knew that God expected righteousness, and yet they willfully chose to rebel against God. And so the verdict, they too are without excuse. They, too, have a liability issue with God. And so the natural question comes, particularly for those who were in the church in Rome, then why us? Well, why are we saved? Verse 9, are, are we better than they? Are, are we better than they are? Listen, for anybody who grew up in a Christian home, anybody who grew up under religious conditions, anybody who actually has faith in Jesus Christ, what then? Uh, Were we better than they? More worthy of salvation than them? We who grew up in a country, in this country, where we have the freedom to actually own a Bible, the freedom to actually have the information at our fingertips at every turn, at every minute. Are we better? Can we, because of that, stand guiltless before God because we're more worthy of it? Is that why? Maybe it's a morally good person. Maybe their moral goodness is what they hold to. Am I more worthy because I'm morally good? I'm better than this person who I would see their morality is less than my morality. Surely God would accept me. I must be more worthy. Paul's answer is a very definitive no, not at all. We see that in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. Not at all. In other words, don't even let that get to your mind because it isn't true. And Paul tells us why it isn't true. Why is it true that that no matter who's saved, they're no better? God didn't save you because you were better. Paul tells us by painting us a portrait. Really, it's God's portrait of humanity. That's why I titled this message that this is God's portrait of humanity before you ever believe in Jesus Christ by faith. He gives us five brushstrokes here, if you will. Paul shows from God's word that being right with God has nothing to do with any goodness in you. Nothing. Here is why inherent goodness cannot justify you. And this is the issue we must understand because we'll never understand what comes in verse 21 and following until we get this point in our minds right. Justification is meaningless to you if you don't understand your lostness. And so we must get this in our minds. 
And here's God's painting of humanity. Here's God's painting, a self-portrait, really, of you before He saved you, if you're saved. This is a portrait of you if you're not saved. This is a portrait of you the very day you entered the world. Brushstroke number one. Man has a permeating condition. Every man has a permeating condition. Notice what he says at the end of verse 9 and verse 10. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. I love how Paul does this because Paul reaches back in argumentation to his Jewish brothers and sisters, not to things he's saying now and writing to the church in Rome. He reaches back to the Old Testament because that's what they place their hope in. Man has a permeating condition. In other words, none of us can claim some type of superiority before God or above any other human being on the basis that God has chosen us for salvation. In other words, simply because you're saved, you can't say, well, I was more worthy than somebody else. No, you cannot say that. Why? Because man has a permeating condition. We are all under sin. We're all under sin. You're no better. God didn't save you because somehow you were more worthy to be saved than somebody else. That simply means that we are all under the dominion and the power of sin that permeates our very nature. That's why I use the word permeate, because it gives us the idea of completion. It's in there in everything. Everybody has, listen, a righteousness issue. Every human being has a righteousness issue. Notice what he says in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. That's our issue. The issue with humanity before God is not that you sin worse than another person or you sin less worse than another person. That's not your issue with God. Your issue with God isn't how good you are or how apparent good you are compared to everybody else who may or may not be good. That's not your issue. Your issue is a righteousness issue. You are liable to God for being unrighteous. There is none righteous. That's your issue. When you talk to your friends and your neighbors and your kids and they say, well, I've done good things, maybe so. Maybe they have been good on a human level, but that's not the point. The point isn't how you've manifested your quote-unquote sinfulness in whatever way you've gone about that. You may not have been as sinful as you could be. The issue is, are you as righteous as God? When you are held up before all of humanity, some may be more crooked than you are, but when you are held up before God, you have a righteousness issue. That's the issue here. Were it not for God to take action toward us, the reality is that none of us would be able to stand in His presence ever. None is righteous. And yet, very often today... There are many who look down their spiritual noses at other people and they hold them in contempt and they say, oh, I was saved because I was better than you. 
They believe that's why they are secure before a holy God because somehow in their minds they've seen this reality and convinced themselves that God looked at them even before they were born. Down through the annals of time, he looked down the the, the big telescope that he has because God can see everything and saw how good you would be and so he chose you. That's a lie. That's a damning lie of Satan. cannot be true because of what God said. God explicitly states here, there is none righteous. None righteous. We are all liable before God because we are unrighteous. I love the way the writers of the Old Testament put it. I love the way God put it through them by the inspiration of the Spirit, there are absolutely no exceptions to that reality within the human realm. That's the idea. Every human who has ever lived, every human who will ever live, is guilty before God and stands according to their humanness in a state of unrighteousness before a holy God. There is a permeating condition with humanity. All are unrighteous. Paul isn't describing what man does. He's not saying no one is righteous because they all sin this way. He's not describing activity. He isn't saying that because some specific act of sin is committed or some type of behavior is the reason that you are declared a sinner and guilty and liable before God. That's not the issue. The issue here is that man is a sinner by nature. Throughout his very being, he is unrighteous. Therefore, he does sinful things. All are sinners. Because all are unrighteous. Man's unrighteousness is and has permeated to every human and throughout every human so that no part of man and no part of mankind by itself can stand unguilty before God. To stand before God as unguilty, we must be righteous. We must be without sin. And God declares that no one is righteous. We are all liable. And get this. Get this. In case there is still one last diehard holdout who thinks that, okay, yeah, that's what everybody else in the entire globe and whoever has lived through history is like, they can be that you possibly by yourself could be counted as unguilty before God because of who you are or you've been saved because of who you are. Paul says, notice, no one's righteous, not even one. Get it out of your mind. No one is the emphatic exclamation point on the declared point being made by God. No one is righteous, not even you. Can you imagine standing before the Pope and saying that? No one is righteous, not even you. That's what God's saying. Not even you. So are we better than they are? 
No way, Paul says. Because every man is unrighteous. No one is better. It doesn't matter. That is his permeating condition. He cannot escape it. He is unrighteous. That's what he brings. Brushstroke number two. We stand guilty before God because we have been completely in our character polluted. Man has a completely polluted character. Notice verse 11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Because man has a permeating condition of unrighteousness, it produces in him a polluted character. And and the psalmist, Psalm 14, I read it this morning. This is just another part of Psalm 14. It, it, it declares this, this character reality in two areas. It, it permeates his mind and it permeates his will or his volition or what he does. His mind and his will. Paul says, no one understands. There is none, verse 11, who understands. It isn't that man does not have any understanding. That's not what he's saying. He says, he's not saying what man is clueless to everything. We know that man can understand certain things, right? God even tells us we understand his invisible attributes through what he's made. We can understand the surroundings to a certain extent in which we live. God has given us the capacity as humanity to create beautiful things. We understand certain things. To make and to care for what God has given us. We cultivate the ground. We care for the foliage. But when it comes to spiritual things, man is universally Before he ever has faith in God, he is universally without understanding. That's what he means. The Bible tells us that the things of God and the things of the cross or the things of salvation by way of Christ dying on the cross, that they are foolishness to the natural mind. We studied this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'll just remind us of these again. Chapter 1, verse 18 to 21. For the word of the cross, Paul's means the gospel, the truth that you're guilty before God because of your unrighteousness and Christ can, his righteousness can be attributed to you. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man then, the text asks. Where is the scribe? That was the ones who kept the law. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. We combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? 
because they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He's spiritually dead. He has to have the Spirit of God in it to, to gain a spiritual understanding of those things. He can't understand them. He's a natural man. He doesn't have the Spirit. So apart from the guiding hand of God upon the hardened heart of man, no man could and no man would understand spiritual things. The reason you have any understanding of spiritual things at all is because of God's hand upon you through Christ. Why is that so? Because of his own innate unrighteousness. His own sinful nature, as we call it. It doesn't want to know and it cannot understand. There is none who understands, the text says. So, his permeating condition of unrighteousness has so saturated his mind that it cannot understand spiritual truth. And that reveals that he is utterly polluted with sin. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and describes the unsaved this way. Here's what he says. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. They have no understanding because their unrighteousness permeates everything. You see, the reason man cannot understand is because the very instrument from which life flows is hardened. It's polluted by sin. And so Paul goes on to say to his Jewish brothers, not only that they are polluted in their minds, but also they are polluted in their will. Do you notice that in verse 11? There is no one who understands. That's the mind. There is none who seeks for God. That's volition, the will. Paul is quoting Psalm 14, verse 2. While it's true that God has promised to save all who will seek him, the Bible says, right? Somebody's going to come and say, but doesn't the Bible say that God saves all who seek him? That's true. God will save all who seek him. The reality is, the fact is, that no one naturally in and of themselves seeks for God. In other words, the sinful inclination of our heart exercises itself in a willful refusal to come to God. A willful refusal to embrace the invitation of God to repent and believe. Well, it does. It wants nothing to do with that. Every religious system that seeks to enter the kingdom of God through any other means than that which is declared in Scripture through Christ, by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, any other one that says anything else is a false gospel. And the proof that man wants nothing to do with God's way. John 6, 37, Jesus said, No one can come to me. I love that. Thankfully, it doesn't stop there. No one can come to me. Boy, we'd be in trouble if that's where the verse ended. No one can come to me 
unless, right? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw, by the way, is really the idea of dragging. Unless he drag you. I've never seen a dead body walk to somebody else. Never. You want to move a dead body, you better get your your big boy pants on and drag them. Because they're not coming willingly. That's us. That's us. We want nothing to do with it. The only person who seeks God is the one whom God has first sought. That's the idea. So man has a permeating condition called unrighteousness. And it's manifested in sinful rejection of God. It has produced in him a polluted character in his mind and his will. Brushstroke number three. He's got a permeating condition. He's got a polluted character. Brushstroke number three. This man has putrid conduct. Putrid conduct. Notice verse 12 through 17. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat's an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace have they not known. The natural conduct of man is like the fruit that has sat too long in the bowl. I love bananas. My wife buys bananas for me often. And yet, in a a warm, humid place, they ripen really fast. It's like the bowl of fruit where the fruit has sat too long. It just becomes rotten. And and Paul lists here, I I think, four different pieces, if you will. I'm using this fruit analogy to kind of get it in our minds. This, This is a bowl of fruit, and there's four pieces of fruit here. Verse 12, you see the first one, this fruit of general rebellion against God. He says, all have turned aside. Turned aside. Turned aside means they lean in the wrong direction. That's the idea. They lean in the wrong direction. Man, by nature, is purposefully, by his own choice, by his own desire to not want to have anything to do with God because he has this polluted character He's leaning in the wrong direction. In other words, instead of going after God and following God, he has chosen to follow his own way. That's the idea. Turned aside. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, get this, has turned to his own way. His own way. You can't blame it on somebody else. You can't say, they made me do it. You can't say, well, if I'd have had a different circumstance, I would have done something different. No, not true. Not true. You've turned your own way. And because of that, God says that all humanity, together, collectively, individually and collectively, together they have become useless. that as a derogatory term when we say to somebody else, you're useless. This is a helpful term for us to understand by God. 
It's a strong term to describe us before faith in Jesus Christ. Useless. Useless. It's much like the word used by Christ in John 15 when he's describing the branch that doesn't produce fruit. It's gathered up and thrown into the fire. It's a useless branch. The same way God is saying that because of our unrighteousness, because of the manifestation of that unrighteousness through sinful behavior, we as natural men are useless for the purposes of God. People say, oh, no, I'm worthy for God to save me. No, you're not. God says you're worthless. You're useless to Him. You have no use in His kingdom. In other words, without change, you are useless spiritually. That's the fruit of general rebellion against God. The general rebellion. Then Paul says there's a fruit of corruption that has taken place. Notice the end of verse 12, there is none who does good. There is not even one. The words does good is not referring to some act of goodness. Okay, you have to know that. This isn't, this isn't there is none who does good acts. Because certainly someone in our world, and certainly even the pagan world, could say, but isn't that something good? Haven't we helped other people? I mean, do not even the pagans give and help the poor and, and grab up orphans that need homes? Sure they do. This isn't what he's talking about. He's not talking about some act of goodness because we know that man has a capacity, even in his fallenness, by God's grace, to do good things. In other words, he doesn't exercise his sin as to the extent that he could exercise his sin. Especially it looks good when he compares himself to those who aren't doing that. But when that act is measured against the totality of God and his character, when who you are in your humanity is measured against who he is in his divinity and his righteousness, the only verdict is that all that you have done is not good at all. The word good here actually carries the idea of moral uprightness. Moral uprightness. We could even just say righteous. There is none who does righteously. No man has the desire or the means within themselves to match the perfect God-glorifying uprightness of himself. Even on your best day, even in your best way, you can never be righteous like God without Christ. It doesn't flow from a redeemed heart which has as its desire to glorify God, to show God's righteousness shining through you on display, then it holds no goodness. Man's misconduct is rebellious. His actions are corrupt. That only produces a third fruit, and that is the fruit of death. Death. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Really a graphic picture of what flows out of the heart of man, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is God's declaration about who we are without Christ. A spiritually dead heart 
only produces spiritually dead and hurtful words born one place in vengeance, cursing and bitterness. We've been studying the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 11. We just got to the place where Lazarus is raised from the dead and Mary Martha says to Jesus, ah, don't, don't, don't roll the stone away for by now he stinks. Decay has happened. An open grave is not a good place. But their throat is an open grave. A grave is a place where a dead body lies. An open grave is an offense to the senses. It's an offense. That's why it's really weird for us in, in some kind of way to go to a funeral and see an open casket. It's really bizarre because we've, we've done all kinds of medical things to doctor up the body and pretty it up to make it look like it's not dead, even though it is, and sooner or later deadness wins over. In the days when there was no embalming, an open grave was an offense to your very senses. So, too, the natural man is an offense to God. Unsaved man's words continually speak to his spiritual condition, which is deadness. You say, how so? Paul says, notice, through deception. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. I love the word deception here because it's very graphic. It's, it's, it's the idea of a decoy. Some of you guys are hunters. Some of you guys may even duck hunt. I was thinking of this when I read this word, a decoy. You might even use the word hook because a hook with food on it dropped in the water is a decoy. It's a bait. And for natural man, this is what God is saying about him, for natural man lying And any form of deceit in any kind of way are the habits and the normal part of their life. That's what they are. It's their character. Every word is used to flatter. Every word is used to play to their position, to their way, to what they want. It's used to elevate them in every kind of way. They are simply decoys of the real thing. That's the idea. But notice, not just to gain status here. Their throat's an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. It's not just about status. It's not just about to, to, to puff themselves up. It's really to kill or injure others. You see verse 13? With their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips. That is a deadly snake. One bite, you're done. Remember when my wife and I went to Australia, there's a snake down there called the King Brown. The Australians call it the two-step. Because if you get bitten by this snake, you have two steps and then you're done. It's over. That's what this is. This is what man in his unrighteous condition is like. The words of men can kill. They can kill as quickly as the poison of the most deadly snake. That's what he's saying. It's deceptive. It's a decoy. It's only to kill. And Paul goes on to say that natural man's mouth is, notice, full of cursing and bitterness. In other words, there's no room for anything else. It's completely full. 
It's full of cursing. That means the desire of the worst for the person it's speaking about. That's the idea. It's not curse words in that sense. He's saying cursing in the sense of tearing somebody else down for the benefit of of injuring them, making that desire public before others through some kind of open criticism or defamation. Ah, this is the term of our day, is it not? If that's not bad enough, bitterness joins right alongside it. Say, what's bitterness? Bitterness is the open expression of hostility towards someone that you have now as yourself declared, at least in your heart, as your enemy. That's the idea. Rotten fruit through and through. Three pieces of rotten fruit. Paul gives one more. That's the fruit of hatred. The fruit of hatred. This is where it goes. Notice verse 15 to 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace have they not known. Being swift to shed blood. That's just swift to murder. Swift to murder. Murder flows from a heart of hatred. That's what James says. Why are there fightings and quarrels among you? Is it not you have a desire you're not getting, so you murder? But James, you said it's fights. Yeah, the same heart that goes there is the same heart that actually carries itself to the nth degree and kills somebody else. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, that word is orge, wrathful, Everyone who is wrathful with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or you fool, in a derogatory fashion, is going to be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. All that's equal? Yeah. See, here's the reality. When there is hatred, there is no peace. He says, the path of peace they have not known. The fear of God and the reality of that is not before them. There's no peace. When there's no peace, what follows is destruction. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Destruction, breaking to pieces, destroying. Lives are destroyed when that happens. Relationships are broken. Total devastation takes place. Destruction and misery and utter peacelessness. I believe Paul means by that both inwardly and externally. There's no peace inside and there's no peace outside. There's no peace with God and there's no peace with men. There's another reality here. There's a permeating condition, a polluted character, a putrid conduct. And I'll just mention brushstrokes four and five, maybe speak to it a little bit. Number four, man's prideful cause. What's the cause of all of this? Verse 18, 
there is no fear of God before their eyes. See, that's the cause. The fear of God has been left out. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The entire human race is godless. No fear of God before the entire human race. If man truly was seeking God, it would show that they had a fear of God. Not just the terror of who he is or what he could do. Certainly that should conjure up some kind of fear. Isn't that what Romans 2 said? When you realize that you're under judgment, it is the kindness of God, the hand of God, not crushing you in a moment that leads you to repentance. And yet man doesn't fear God, so they don't care. They don't even think about what he could do or one day what he will do for all who do not own him as their Savior. They have no healthy reverence of God, one that's worked out in those who are, in fact, called by His name. You say, how do you know when someone has a healthy fear of God? Here it is. Christianity, I was saying to somebody this morning, Christianity is not words, it's obedience. It's submission to the Word of God. If we had time, we could go to Acts chapter 5 and show you the reality of Ananias and Sapphira and their death before God and all the church feared God, it says. But here, the prideful cause of man's plight is his own desire to have his own way. Why? Because he does not fear God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And yet Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Man has this prideful cause. So what's the fifth brushstroke? What's the final brushstroke of God on the self-portrait of humanity? It's this, man's painful consequence. Here's man's painful consequence. We know, verse 19 and 20, And whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What Paul's saying, he's saying the entire world is guilty. We all have a liability issue. We're all accountable to God because we all know God's laws and the verdict according to that reality is everybody's guilty. We're all liable. No one is justified before God by the works of the law. You cannot do good works. You cannot conjure up a life. You are not worthy of salvation. No one is justified before God on the conditions of your morality. Ugly picture. It's a grotesque picture. I'm not even sure the Smithsonian would hang it. It's too true. Reading this week, I'll just end with these comments. There's a story of a man in Scotland who was walking through a park. It's a Saturday afternoon. He's walking through the park. He's carrying a small leather case, and in that leather case is his Bible, the New Testament. He had a copy of the New Testament in his little leather case, thinking 
that the case was some kind of camera, a group of young students came up and asked him to take a picture. In his response, he said this, quote, I already have it, unquote. Of course, you can imagine, they were amazed. What do you mean, you already have our picture? And he asked them if they would listen to him, and he, they said yes, and so he took out his New Testament and he read Romans 3, 9 through 12. Here's who you are. After reading that, he said, that's your picture. He used the opportunity to share Christ with them. Interesting. It's an ugly picture, isn't it? It's an ugly picture, but it's a picture we all know. We all know too well. Because before Christ, this is a self-portrait. And yet after Christ, guess who the picture is of now? Not you. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of Christ. And the only picture God would accept is his own. The righteousness of God. And so the self-portrait, the ugly portrait of an unsaved man can be changed. And that change can only be made by being justified through Christ by faith. It's exactly what Paul's going to say in the next verses. He's going to talk about how to be justified before God because without Christ there is none that are justified. We're all guilty. Let's, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, this morning, we thank you for your words in Romans 3 through the Apostle Paul. We thank you of what it's shown us, not only about ourselves prior to Christ, but ourselves if we don't know Christ, a picture of humanity, each and every person. Lord, help us to not be convinced in our mind that we're okay with you simply because we think we're worthy that something we've done or some life that we might have had, we are worthy. There may be even those here who would know their life was really tragic and yet in some ways would doubt that you could even save them. But Lord, you don't save anybody on the basis of them. You justify no one by their goodness or by their lack of goodness. You only justify people by your son Jesus Christ. And so... You call all men to repent and believe. Turn from their wickedness and embrace Jesus Christ by faith that they might know what true righteousness is in Christ. That they might now desire to, to live and be equipped to live according to what your word says for the right reasons. Not to gain justification, but because in Christ there is justification. Thank you for showing us our guilt. Thank you for showing us our complete liability before you. Unless that is dealt with, there will be no hope for eternity. Lord, use us in our lives, even this day we pray in Jesus' name.